feel as though I ought to start by telling a few jokes, but you've come to the wrong place. That's in the other room. Hello. I'm Adrian Goldberg. Welcome to the first edition of Adrian Goldberg's talk show live tonight at the Glee Club in Birmingham. Now, our guest tonight is Pat Murphy, and I just want a, a little personal word about Pat Murphy. He's worked for the BBC for many years. I was active in campaigning against the identity card scheme that some of you may remember the Thatcher government was keen to impose on football. And Pat gave me a platform in the late 1980s on Radio 5 to explain why, as an ordinary football fan, I was opposed to that idea. And unlike many people in the media at that time, he was sympathetic, he was encouraging and keen to hear what ordinary football fans had to say. Little did I know that in a few years' time he would become a colleague of mine on the radio. Now, as a member of the Test Match Special Team and a Five Live reporter, Pat has covered 18 England overseas cricket tours. He's also written a book called The Greatest Season. It's about Warwickshire's 1994 treble winning season. In the world of football, he's covered the Midlands football scene for many decades. And, of course, Brian Clough, with whom he formed a special bond. And he's got some great stories about Cluffy. So, without any further ado, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to the stage, Pat Murphy. Let's start with cricket, Pat, because uh, obviously you've had these massive number of overseas tours. You've got your lovely book over there, a fiver off tonight. Did I mention that? that, that Num- Pat- number 44, <laughs> by the way. Number 44. Warwickshire's 1994 season, mm. the treble-winning season, Brian Lara. It was an incredible season. But I was covering Warwickshire for Radio WM at the time as well. It was brilliant cricket. But there was a hell of a lot going on behind the scenes, wasn't there? We all love an anniversary, don't we, in sports? So this was an obvious chance to do it. I was very lucky. A lot of these people were and remain my friends. Um, there were so many interesting aspects going on. They didn't always get on with each other, you know. One thing that, looking back, that really struck me, how many of them smoked and how many of them liked a bevy as well? Now, they were very, very good cricketers and they had one genius, one great player as well. But I loved that chemistry about the fact that Harold Wilson, when he was Prime Minister, once referred to creative tensions in the Cabinet. There were a lot of creative tensions in that Warwickshire dressing room. But when they crossed the white line, it didn't seem to matter. Uh, That common goal was there. But it might never have happened in terms of that fantastic success, three trophies out of four, runners-up in the fourth, if um, Brian Lara had not been signed just at the right moment because uh, Warwickshire had given up on Manoj Pabaka. He'd got an injury, so he said, we can't have you as the overseas player. This young lad, Lara, scoring a few runs. MJK Smith, the chairman of Warwickshire, was out there at the time, England manager of the test team. And they did a deal whereby they signed up Lara for £40,000. Now, in 1994, that wasn't much. The going rate for overseas players was about £50,000. They did the deal just before the Antigua Test match. And then Brian Lara scored 375. So that straight after that Test match, they would have not have got him for £150,000 because he was then the world record holder. And I'm told that the, uh, the, the membership subs went through the roof and they signed sufficient amount of members to make £120,000. So Warwickshire made eighty grand profit after getting a genius and the best cricketer in the world. But to make it even uh, more uh, knife-edge, Mike Smith, famously absent-minded, lost the contract, Lara's contract, just before the test match. And he's thinking, 
oh shit, what are we going to do? He's got all these runs. His, his agent's going to be asking for more money. The chambermaid taken the contract and put it away for safekeeping. I hope she got a massive, massive tip. But that shows you how slender the, the threads are between success and failure. And in Warwickshire's case, fantastic achievement in the county championship history. We were just talking in the dressing room about one or two Warwickshire players who were rather from, rather more than a bevy at the time. Recreational substances, I believe the <laughs> phrase is. And, and sometimes, it's, it's on record now, uh, sometimes you found yourself thinking, I'm interviewing this particular player, I'm thinking, has he been to Colombia overnight? Uh, and uh, and uh, he's his dressing room is smelling rather sweet. Uh, it, it just didn't seem to matter, though. Bob Woolmer presided over the whole thing benignly. And it just worked. Opposites attract. And, uh, and they'd spent some time getting a decent side organised. The one in that West week bef- uh, the year before. But yes, Adrian, subsequently, uh, I think Warwickshire, if there was a league table for um, county sides that went slightly beyond the legal pale in the next five years or so, it would have been Warwickshire in that particular period. For me, that actually added to the interest because they remained interesting guys. And meeting up with them and talking to them. Trevor Penny, I rang him in Montreal. Andy Moles in Afghanistan. Hold up in Kabul. Uh, Dougie Brown in, out in the Arab, United Arab Emirates, um, Dubai. It's been great for me actually catching up on all these guys. None of these three, by the way, can I just say, were part of that um, illegal substances group. I need to absorb all those from criticism. But it's been, it's been a labour of love for me and the easiest book I think I've ever written. You did write as well an autobiography, or a biography rather, of... Ian Botham, you went on some of his walks as well, Sir Ian Botham. Sir Ian Botham, indeed, starting over the, the, the Leukaemia Research Walk in 1985, um, John McGroats to Land's End. I joined at various stages and retro- retreated ignominiously with groin strains and all sorts of things, but also doing a bit of work for the, the radio at the same time. But, you know, 584 miles, I think it was, in five weeks, absolutely remarkable achievement. Absolutely amazing. One of the tabloid guys, Chris Lander, he was only going to walk one day, left his car at John McGroats, and both them wouldn't let him go. He kept walking. They get to Land's End, and then Chris suddenly realised, bloody hell, my car's up in John McGroats. What am I going to do? So he had, he had to square that with the Daily Mirror to pay for him to fly back up and get his car. Um, on one of the trips, I was, um, I was a press officer. Now, that really was a hospital pass. That was um, Aberdeen to Ipswich. Now, if I tell you that Beefy biffed one of the uh, policemen on the nose on day two, and I had to cover that one up uh, <laughs> somehow, telling you all sorts of porkies. And then we did Perpignan to Turin in the footsteps of the Emperor Hannibal. Now, what Ian Botham knew about the Emperor Hannibal could be written on the back of a postage stamp, but it led to great comic moments. There's a great lad called Greg Ritchie, who was an Australian batsman, very, very funny man. Greg, like me, was astounded why every day at the end of it all, the elephants, I've got to stand up for this, the elephants would stand there, open their legs wide as if they were facing a fast bowler and just stand there and pee for 30 minutes. A golden torrent would run down, would run down the road in these French villages. We went to places like, literally, Chateau Neuf de Pat. There's a village called Chateau Neuf de Pat. And they came out with a case of 1981 uh, Cabernet Sauvignon for both of them and his hangers-on, including myself. Anyway, Greg was as equally astounded at just how much the elephants could defecate. <laughs> it was astounding. 
uh, one of my favourite animals, by the way. You go to Sri Lanka, everything starts at elephants for the parades, and I used to thoroughly approve of that. I think they're wonderful, noble beasts. Anyway, uh, both of them had this idea that we'd play a bit of a prank on Greg Ritchie. I'll try to be as, um, uh, as euphemistic as I can, but it basically involved Greg, who was a very, very heavy snorer, very, very heavy sleeper. He crept into his, uh, his room one night with a lot of um, elephant deposits, and they continued to bung up Greg's loo. So when Greg had the call of nature about 4 a.m. in the morning, he plopped straight onto it. And, um, and that led to a lot of uh, anger. On beh- it severed England-Anglo-Australian relationships for at least 24 hours. But that's the kind of thing that goes on on tour. And it was a fantastic experience. I'll never forget doing so many things. I was doing a program for Radio 4, Adrian. It was on, uh, they finished on, say, the Tuesday. And we were broadcasting it live the next night at 8 o'clock. It was called, because of the elephants, Botham Packs His Trunk. And uh, I was sending things back from, this is 1988, sending things back from post offices all over the place, Julie Andrews' Pepsodent territory, walking through the Alps, thinking, my God, but then I thought, I've got to find a post office. Sending it back to my producer, who was then sending me telegrams. No mobiles, no texts, no, no Twitter. Telling me telegrams about how much he'd done so far. And when I got in there, got into the broadcasting house, the program started at half past eight. We are editing, just think about this, you're in the business as well. We are editing the last 25 minutes, and it's got to be bang on the nose while the first 35 minutes is going out. Now, Radio 4, as you know, Adrian, they're a bit precious. You know? They want to be just right. They quite like the script three weeks before, and that's for a new story. So, so we're editing this, and, and all oh, it's falling out of me, absolutely I'm, I'm in a terrible state. We finally hit it on the button with about five seconds to spare. And if I tell you that the first three pints didn't touch the sides, that, <laughs> that, was, a, that was an interesting uh, end to what was a remarkable few weeks. Emperor Hannibal. And both of them, you got your biggest scoop out of both ah, didn't you? 1984, the mother-in-law interview. You're all too young to remember <laughs> this. Um, England had been on a very, very enjoyable hedonistic tour of New Zealand called the sex and drugs and rock and roll tour. <laughs> and there was a lot of that went on. We'll draw a veil over that for a moment. But if I tell you that a lot of it was true. Anyway, yes. Uh, uh, so Ian had a knee injury, a genuine knee injury, and the West Indies were due in 84. He was allowed, to his great relief, because he wasn't a fan of Pakistan, to come back early to get, an in- to get his knee sorted out. Now, the Mail on Sunday ran a huge splash on it the previous Sunday about all the things that were going on, going on, that Ian Botham and Alan Lambert implicated, blah, 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 blah. Their wives furious, etc. Questions asked in the House. Cue moral outrage from the body politic of England. You know, as Macaulay, the historian, once said, we know nobody more outraged than the English in one of their periodic fits of morality. Right? That was Thomas Babington Macaulay in, in the 19th century. So I tracked Ian down at the Woodlands Hospital, in, uh, in Northfield, Birmingham. So I'm sitting there. It's 9 o'clock in the morning. I brought a bottle of brandy with me. Failed to, pre- failed to prepare. Prepare to fail. <laughs> so we're sat there having a chat about all sorts of things. The phone rings. It's Elton John. So he's yakking away about his new album. All that's all right. What's going well here? Pouring him another one. Phone rings again. Eric Clapton. <laughs> I knew he had famous showbiz friends. But I, I'm thinking to myself, wow, I'm way out of my league here. So eventually he said, you got your machine? He said, yeah, let's do it. We'll chat. So I said to him, knowing that Ian didn't like Pakistan, 
I bet you're glad to be back here, you know. You're not a fan of Pakistan, are you? Now, there was a pause. And the great Terry Wogan, as you know, Adrian, was a great man for pauses on radio. You could lead a lot into pauses, read a lot into pauses. And he's looking at me. And he said, I, I could see his mind going. And he thought, oh, because we'd had a few brandies. And uh, at 9.45 in the morning. And I've still got to go to Leicester to do a football interview, by the way. And then West Brom, Johnny Giles. I was due to interview him as well. It was a Friday morning. And we thought, what's going on? He looked at me. He said, Pakistan. Pakistan, it's the kind of place to send your mother-in-law to. All expenses paid. <laughs> and I'm looking at there, and through my befuddlement, I'm thinking, got a story here. <laughs> and then he said, Jan had liked that. Jan, his mother-in-law, with whom he had a very good relationship. He liked her very much. He said, Jan will like that one. Off he goes, r- riffing about the inadequacies of Pakistan. Blah, blah, blah. And I thought, oof. I'm not going to tell our office about this because this wasn't 24-7 days in those days. It was all Radio 2 used to the sport. I thought, well, hang on to this bit. So off I went to Leicester. Off I went to West Brom. Finally, I got back to Pebble Mill late afternoon and I played it down the line. I said, just listen to this. And they all went, what? Bloody hell. What are we going to do with this? I said, well, it's above my pay grade. I just deliver. <laughs> You're paid to make these decisions. They made, in my opinion, the right decision. They ran it on the sports desk, 45 seconds the night before, Friday night. Full interview on Sport on 4. It was a very, very good program presented by Cliff Morgan. They ran it, they ran it the next day. And then the lumpy stuff hit the fan. The Pakistan High Commissioner in London <laughs> rang up my boss and threatened a fatwa on me. <laughs> it was Salman Rushdie days. <laughs> Um, threatened a fat one on me and Ian Botham when he came out of his hospital bed uh, at the Woodlands <laughs> Northfield. Now, fast forward, a move across the continent. At that time, one of my great mates, Bob Willis, was England captain. He was there with England, test match in Lahore, and um, they were there for 10 days, build up and, and afterwards. Um, the hotel staff downed tools. They refused to make the beds, give them any food. They said, you're on your own. Ian Botham has insulted our country. And um, the next five days of the test match, the disconsolate manager had to make um, baked beans on the primer stove at the ground for the England players. So the England players went hungry for about ten days. Uh, I, I avoided the fatwa. And uh, Ian Botham was hauled up before the beaks. And I, I, sent, I sent a le- letter again, trying to phone, letter saying, Ian, thank, uh, my fault, I've got to take responsibility for this. I'll help you with the fine. Thank God he didn't. He didn't t- pick me up because it was a £1,000 fine. What's the £1,000 now in 1984 terms? Anyway, Ian got fined, and uh, I got away with it. But the funniest sequel was on the Monday. This interview was on the Friday, broadcast on the Saturday morning. Pakistan, the son of the place, send your mother-in-law to. Um, Ian's mother-in-law got nine invites from national newspapers to go to Pakistan as a travel reporter. <laughs> She, de- she declined because she was working education at the time. Fast forward 16 years, my first tour to Pakistan. And by the way, a really, really good place to go to, fantastic place. Everything works. Tra- planes run on time. Hotel bookings are available, unlike other tours I've been on. The only trouble is there's no alcohol available, so you've got to declare yourself as, a, as an alcoholic 
uh, to qualify for alcohol. <laughs> and that wasn't a problem for Her Majesty's Press, including <laughs> myself. So Jan, mother-in-law, she'd been booked by the, by the Mirror as a travel reporter, and she came over and she said, what's he in on about? This is a lovely country. These hotels are wonderful. So there was a, there, there was a good end product for Jan 16 years later, and I got away with it, and uh, I've never forgotten Ian's generosity for making sure that I didn't take the rap as well. But it remains my only genuine world exclusive in 49 years. I was just trying one of those Radio 4 pauses there, Pat. Wow, <laughs> Checking the audience were awake. <laughs> yeah. Knight of the Realm, Sir Geoffrey Boycott. You've had one or two dealings with Jeff over Sir Geoffrey. I was writing a book on the 100 hundreds. Guys that score the 100 hundreds. Now, all of you know it begins with W.G. Grace and it ends with Mark Ramprakash. Very good book. It came out in uh, it came out in two thousand nine. I think it, there are a few people who brought their copies to be signed. Tonight. I hope so. I hope so. I'll spend an eternity with you. I rang up Jeffrey. Said, right, Jeffrey, um, your last day. Your like, I knew the answer. Uh, your last day as a cricketer. September the twelfth, nineteen eighty six, five twenty one. Walked off the ground at Scarborough. Bloody annoyed. I've been run out. Makes a change, Jeffrey. I said. He took no notice of that. Makes a change. Hey, Alan Walker, third man. Against North Ants. Jim Love. I said, there's not a second. No, no, there's not a second one. Oh, I run out by, I run out by a yard and a half. That walker, got a good arm. That, oh, he chanted on and on about him. It's about 24 years later. Never forgotten him. So I knew Alan Walker. I rang up Alan, got him out of his potting shed. He burst out laughing when I told him about it because he couldn't stand Boycott. And he was, he was delighted to tell the story about running out Boycott. Boycott dragged himself away. Dennis Amos ran him out in the test match at Trent Bridge. They refused to talk to him for the rest of the test match. And, um, and Raymond Illingworth got them together. And he said, if you don't talk to each other, you're the opening pair. You're, you're off. You're not, not playing the next test match at Lords. Because Boycott had sat there. He'd sat there all the time saying, them's my runs he's scoring. <laughs> so Amos got 100. And Amos is one of the few England players opening bats who faced down Jeffrey Boycott and just wouldn't actually allow him to bully him. Uh, but Boycott, amazing, amazing memory. He'd burst through the door and say, come on, let me at them, at TMS. Or he'd come off his long run. Test Night Special always do interviews, a view from the boundary. The great and the good have all been on it, Adrian. You and I are about the only two who's never been on a view from the boundary. They've had Stephen Fry, Theresa May. Whatever happened to her? Um, Boycott's favourite cricketer, but um, Jeffrey's her favourite cricketer, by the way. Draw your own conclusions from that. Anyway, uh, the view from the boundary at short notice this time was Alice Cooper. Now, you'd all remember Alice Cooper. School's out for summer. 1972 pop pickers. It was number one. Anyway, Alice Cooper, huge golf fan, had no idea what he was doing there talking cricket, but it's the only one we could get at short notice, you see. So he comes in with his usual even though he hadn't had a hit for 40 years, he's got his usual retinue, you know, didn't you used to be Alice Cooper, that kind of syndrome, uh, accompanied by an extremely attractive, curvaceous lady. Uh, Jeffy Boycott didn't play many shots as a batsman, but in his time he's not been averse to uh, cozying up alongside a lady inquiring after their health. So on this particular occasion, Jeffy's looking at the serried ranks and he's, and he's thinking to himself, who the bloody hell's Alice Cooper now? Because Jeffrey's talents don't run to knowing about 1972 pop icons. So he took, he took the plunge, and in characteristic fashion, 
he went up to the decorative blonde, the only one in the room, and said, Hello, Alice, Jeffrey Boycott. <laughs> He'll never die wandering, Jeffrey. Uh, you, had, you were great friends with Bob Willis, uh, local Warwickshire hero, great fast bowler. He kind of got your, your on train to the England dressing Bob room. Bob was tremendously yeah. helpful to me, Adrian. Yeah. Uh, 1977, the first, first um, book I did with Bob, uh, fast bowling, slim volume. Uh, but then he introduced me to uh, Bob Taylor, wicketkeeping by Bob Taylor. On and on it went, the production line, and those guys learned to trust me. And I was incredibly lucky. It was a very happy time for me, that England team, captained by Mike Brealy, who I admire enormously, Mike Brealy, in all sorts of areas. Um, and, and 1981, I was writing a book on the decline of slow bowling. This was before Shane Warne, before Abdul Qadir, and I was getting fed up with the West Indies bowlers bowling 12 overs an hour, and I thought, it's about time... We, I wrote a book about this, and I spent all my time up and down the land talking to great far, former bowlers, spin bowlers like Jim Laker, Johnny Wardle, and co. Bob was very helpful to me, getting me in touch with Pat Pocock and Raven Illyworth and co. And on the second night, Edgeworth and Test Match, cast your mind back. That was the Test Match when Ian Botham got five for one on the Sunday. It was an incredibly dramatic Test Match. And I, I'm serious about this. The, the, the highest score was Mike Brealey, 48 Lily and Aldman, they're all there. And it was just after both of them had turned it round with that astonishing 149 not out of Headingley, Willis 8 for 43. And I cannot tell you how tense it was behind the scenes because I was there. This is one of those occasions I still can't believe that I was so lucky. Willis rang me up on the m Friday night. No mobiles, no texts. I'm at home. Right, I got home from Edgerton. Uh, Brealey had got out for the second time in the match that night. So Brealey's Batting had done, right? They were about 10 for one, England, leading by three, I think it was. I'll attempt Jack. Math, are you there? Goose here. How are you? How are you? Okay. Briz says, come in the dressing room tomorrow morning. He'll talk to you about spin bowling. Bob, what are you talking about? You lot are under the pump. You're in the poo. You could lose this test tomorrow. Now, he says, he'll do it. But about all you lot there in the dressing room? Now, forget it. It'll be all right. I'll probably bat after about an hour and a half, knowing our bloody batsman. But uh, with a bit of luck, you'll get about an hour and a half within the four hour go out number 11. Okay, Smurf, bye, bye, bye. So, <laughs> is that a good enough impersonation? Are you happy with that one? So, I turn up and I'm ushered in. Mike really sat, come on, sit down, sat on the floor. And they're all, the game, the test has just started, the television's on. Oh, uh, he was so polite, Mike. Oh, you don't mind. I just want to watch the cricket. Is that okay? Well, I said, well, Mike, you're England captain. <laughs> nothing at all to do with me. I can't believe I'm sat here. Bernard Thomas, the physio. In those days, no hangers-on. You know, there are more hangers-on in tracksuits now than players, for heaven's sake. Bernard Thomas, the physio, dressing room attendant. That was it. So they're bringing me cups of tea and cups of coffee. And I'm sat there with, uh, with Mike Brealy talking about batting against Bish and Betty and... Oh, it's fantastic, because Mike really is just egghead, cricket brain, egghead brain, full stop. Walking past me, going out to bat, there's David Gower, Graham Gooch is coming, having been dismissed, hangdog, looking more and more like Farmer Giles, going, going over the, the lowing herd, winding slowly over the lee. And, and, and Peter Willey, who's not a man to cross, he gives me a stare, he sees I'm with Brealey, didn't say a word, Bob Taylor, John Embry, they're all back and forth being dismissed. And England are in absolute strife. And 
And he's still talking to me. I could not believe this. And the tension in that dressing room. You could have heard a pin drop. And the players were far more interested in Mike Brealy talking about batting against spin bowling and captaining spin bowling. And I'm sat there recording it thinking, all my Christmases had come. So uh, then it was all over. And Willis, before he went, about, right, Smurf, come with me. So we go into the dining room. You may remember the old dining room. I've got to write an article for Wisdom Cricket Monthly because, as you know, I'm one of the editorial directors. It's my, my 8 for 43, and I can't remember a bloody thing about it, Smurf. Can you help me? It was only about 10 days ago. So I'm sitting writing Bob's column for him. And he's got it. Right, got to go. He's got his pads on. Off he goes. So he didn't last for very long. He came back, and between innings, he finished the article with me. And I came away from that game that Saturday, as was in Test Match. Check it out, ladies and gentlemen. It was a very, very slow-scoring day, about 1.7 runs per over. And I'm thinking to myself, have I really experienced this day? And I was incredibly lucky to do so. Talking of spin bowling, it did make a comeback. Shane Warne. Shane Warne. Best, best spinner ever. Hollywood. Hollywood. We, he was nicknamed Hollywood because he was not bashful. Greatest press conference I've ever seen. Edgbaston, 2005. Remember the night that Harmison bowled Michael Clark with a slower delivery? Yep, I've, I've, I've woken you up. Excellent. And we all thought, no, England are going to win that. 105 to needed, only two wickets left Saturday night. Fires were lit at Bar Beacon. Maypoles were danced around at Moseley. We were all dancing in the streets, toasting each other, awarding each other OBEs. We thought... We're back in it. 1-0 down. We're going to win this. Warren comes in to the, pre- the press room. It's packed to the rafters. about 100 media folk, endless camera crews. Warren comes in to do the press comms on a Saturday night. He's not out. Three. He sits there. Immaculate timing. He waits till all the camera crews are ready. And he says, all right, you ready? Right, let's rock and roll. And then they're saying to him, it's, it, let's rock and roll. And then he said, well, what do you think? Well, we're going to win this. We're probably not going to lose a wicket. Well, hang on, think about this. I got 99 a couple of months ago in a test match, and I still can't bloody believe that the Tory got me out. That had been my maiden test 100. I'm still spewing about it. Um, Brett Lee's got six 50s um, in test matches. Uh, Kasper, Kasperovich is a really good... He's got four 50s. You lot are knackered. And if you lose this one... Psychologically, if you lose this one, we're going to beat you 5 0. You don't hear this at press conferences. Believe me, you don't. If you lose this tomorrow, all the pressures are on you lot. I'm going to win it with the bat. I'm not bad with the ball. Do you agree? <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm not bad with the ball. I tell you what, I'm not bad with the bat either. So I came out of that. And I said to the press officer, uh, England press officer, you should get that on the DVD, that press conference, and you should show it to every England player about how you can turn things around. The next day, as you all know, Warren batted like a god, trod on his stumps. They got so close. If Billy Bowden, um, is there a camera somewhere near so I can go towards it? Is there a spot that I can back into not so reluctantly? Billy Bowden made the wrong decision. Uh, Grant Jones caught that. Australia won that test match. Uh, but he didn't, obviously. I appreciate that. Graham Gooch is on air with me. And he's sounding like a babbling teenager. He was so excited. It was a fantastic day. Fast forward about a month, oval dressing room, Adrian. I was in there interviewing every England player, plus, to their great credit, 
Adam Gilchrist and Shane Lee, that's what, Adam Gilchrist and Brett Lee came in to offer congratulations to the England boys. You know, anybody can do that when you're winning, but when you've lost, fair play to them. And graciously agreed to come on air and do an interview with me. We did it live from the um, England dress room during that particular week. I'll never forget them for that. And anyway, Strauss, Andrew Strauss is talking to Ashley Giles. And he said, I, I was part of the conversation. You know that shot of Brett Lee's that went straight to me on the boundary? I'm at the point boundary. Yeah, yeah. They only ran one. If that had gone for four, a yard either way, Australia with a one-by-one one wicket. Andrew Strauss had been to Cuba for a quick, uh, a quick holiday with his wife, Ruth. And he brought back a box of cigars just in case England won it. And he's smoking the biggest cigars you've ever seen in your life. It needed planning permission. It was that big. <laughs> Strauss and Giles are uh, smoking uh, these huge Havana cigars. And Strauss said, actually, every night since then, I've had the nightmare that it went past me for four. And, and Ashley said, do you know, so have I. <laughs> the pair of them, and Stina, Ashley's wife, has confirmed that with me. The pair of them had the same nightmare for a month, <laughs> that the ball went just the wrong side. But shame warm. What a man. What a sledger. Well, let's talk a bit about football, though, Pat, because yeah. I think the player or the person, the football personality that you're most closely associated with has got to be Brian Clough, hasn't it? And you, you found out before anybody, that, other than his family, that Cloughy had passed away? That's kind of you say that, Adrian. I, I, I'd spent a lot of time trying to get to know Brian Clough. I graduated from who the hell are you and you could blankety-blank off to not today. And uh, nine times out of ten, I'd be told to go forth and multiply, but hung around. I remember one occasion I sat outside his office for six hours waiting for him. And then he finally came in. He said, you got five minutes. He barked at me, you got five minutes. I got half an hour of absolute gold dust. By the way, during that particular period, that six hours, I had the, the, I had the luckily I had the constitution in those days, of intestinal constitution of a camel. I didn't need to go at the loo. I couldn't possibly do it now. It'd be 15 minutes. Anyway, right at the end, he gave an absolutely magical interview. He was at his best then. It was late 80s, early 90s. He said, you'll get Summit out of that. And off he went. I thought, Summit, my word, we will. He was just brilliant. Um, he was... I, I, when I was a news reporter, I interviewed Margaret Thatcher when she's leader of the opposition. That was an interesting chat with Miss Gamma Rays, um, you know, Rod Stewart, all sorts of people, uh, Dennis Healy, Sir Keith Joseph, uh, when I was in news. Uh, tremendous times. But nobody in all my time have I, uh, I interviewed that I've been more challenged by than Brian Clough with his dark, hazel eyes. He'd just look at you and just make sure he was just at you all the time. And I spent a lot of time with him in his, in his last few years. We all know how ill he was. And he was troubled, of course he was. Um, drink had taken its toll. But the fact still remained, he couldn't, he couldn't fail to be fond of him. And I did the last interview with him 10 days before he died. It was fantastic because Arsenal were about to beat Forest record for unbeaten games. Do you remember, Adrian? That, that great Arsenal. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I said, Brian, in about a week's time, uh, they're playing... Uh, Arsenal playing, and they're going to beat Middlesbrough, your old, your old team, aren't they? Yeah, they'll beat them. So can we do a piece now, and we won't play until the morning after Arsenal beaten your record? He said, OK. This is where Clough was so interesting. He had a great, smart brain. And Clough would say, right, run your tape. Right, all you lot, you're all listening to that this morning. I said, I've got to tell you, my news for Arsene this morning is... I know a lot of opticians in the Highbury and Islington area. I suggest you go to one of them, uh, 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 Arsene. He goes, 
You never seem to see any of your players uh, get sent off or, or commit a foul. But never mind. I like the way you lot play. I hope I'll come and see you shortly now. Ta-da. Brilliant stuff. And he'd been on his back all that, all that time. And his grandson, Barbara, his wife, kept coming and giving him food and tablets. I thought no more of it. Now, my mother was in the hospital, sadly suffering from terminal cancer. Brian organized flowers for her. And then I was doing this column for him every, every month, and Nigel rang up. I was l living at my mother's place, sleeping on the floor. He rang up and he said, uh, got me dad for you. And he came on in the, ho in the hospital, not allowed to use mobiles. So we're doing the column on the phone, blah, blah. Put a good word in for Bobby, because the last column, Bobby Robson, the last column I said, he's too old, his hair's too white, doesn't look good in a tracksuit. That wasn't very fair. Just say he was a great manager. So uh, Brian's dying. I didn't know that at the time. This is four days before he died. So then the last thing he said, how's your mam? Very soft on mothers, Brian. Very, very soft on mothers. And dogs. His <laughs> retriever, Del Boy, he reckon he was the fittest dog in Derbyshire because they used to take him walking everywhere. Anyway, he said, give your mam my love. Tell her, I know she knows this, hospitals are shit houses. Now, I can't wait to get out of mine. <laughs> give her my love. So that was it. Four days later, I just interviewed Ricky Ponting, Australia-England Champions Trophy semi-final, about to interview Michael Vaughan, and I got a call, and it was Nigel. He said, my dad's just passed away. It's the Monday morning. Oh, my God, Nigel, what are saying? He said, we're not announcing it for four hours, so you can get your interviews organised. It would have done down the years, because I know my dad liked him, which was very sweet of him, and you can get a few people organised, like, like uh, Gary Bills and Co. I said, yeah, okay. So dashed home, and... I've always wanted to do this. I called a conference call. Oh, you don't have to feel special <laughs> when you can call a conference call at the BBC. There's only two people in the department I could trust. And we had the conference call. And I'm on my way home in the car. And we agreed nobody was going to let anybody else know. And I gave him all these numbers, Roy McFarland, Peter Schultz, you name it. So we got it all organised. And I was on from quarter to two that Monday till... Five to ten that uh, that Monday night, just anchoring the whole thing, and it was a fantastic professional privilege, but it was massive personal sadness. Of course, it was, but it was just um, amazing. You know, quite a few players didn't get on with the majoring, but the fact still remains that nobody ever slagged him off. Really, seriously, slagged off Brian Clough. He said funny things towards the end of his days. We're sitting. Uh, his, his home listened to Frank Sinatra, and I was a huge Ella Fitzgerald fan, Tony Bennett. We used to listen to the great American songbook, Nat King Cole, uh, Frank Sinatra. Hey, Patrick, he said, yes, Brian, would you listen, come, come fly with me? Hey, Patrick, you know that, that Francis Albert? I said, yeah, Sinatra. You know, he's met me, you know. <laughs> <laughs> You're right, anybody else would say, right. Tell me more. Yeah, he's met me. He's met me. 1971, Madison Square Garden. Ali Frazier. I'm manager of Derby County. I told Sam Longson, the chairman, I'm buggering off to watch Ali because Ali had an even bigger ego than me. I liked Ali. He made me laugh, unlike you buggers. So anyway, I get there. Madison Square Gardens. I'm sat there with, I think it was the Mirror. He was, he was with, with the Mirror's boxing writer. And I walk in at the loo and there's Francis Albert. He's got the pork pie hat on. 
I said, hey, what are you doing here? He had no idea, obviously, no idea who Brian Clough was. He could only get in, he blagged in as a photographer for Time Life magazine. <laughs> Frank Sinatra, because his career was an eclipse then. He said, hey, I got in the credit, I got kosher, I got kosher credit. Francis Albert, they're getting through the back door. So he's met me, you know, he's met me. Lovely, lovely. Mourinho, sorry, God, last year God. was live. <laughs> hey, Patrick, what's that Portuguese bloke's name? He's just Mourinho. Ah, reminds me a bit of me, you know, at the same age. But ah, we're better looking. <laughs> lovely. What about our West Midlands teams, uh, Pat? Who was your favourite manager in all your times dealing oh, with people? Oh, Adrian, you? that's a tough one. I can't even begin to. I can't even begin to answer that one. Ron Atkinson made me laugh always when he was at Manchester United. Brighton semi-final 1983. We used to get the successful managers together looking forward to the Wembley Cup final. And I got Ron on air in the Villa uh, interview area. Jimmy Melia scouser like Ron babbling away at Highbury about what they're going to do. And Ron winks at me because Jimmy Melia says, oh, we're going to conquer Europe. We're going to be Brighton. We're going to be wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. And Ron, manager of Manchester United, uh, he winks at me. He said, Jim, the only way you'll get into Europe is if you write a song. He was funny. Ron always came out with um, great uh, quips. Ron Saunders. I thought Ron Saunders was a tremendous Aston Villa manager. But Ron Atkinson always had the upper hand on him verbally. And this occasion, uh, whichever game it was, um, uh, the rival managers, I was interviewing um, Ron Atkinson and Ron Saunders walked past. A great respect for Ron Saunders. I've got to say this. Villa's greatest ever manager, in my opinion. And that's with respect to Tony Barton, but that 82 team was Ron Saunders' team. We all know that. And I thought he was a tremendous, great handshake. He had a bone-crunching handshake, Ron Saunders. He always caught, he always tried you out. I used to say to him, who's going to let go first, Ron? Because I'm enjoying this. I mean, the time's <laughs> passing on, but well, I'll carry on as long as you want. He tests you out all the time. Anyway, Ron, uh, Ron Atkinson is talking to me. Ron Saunders walks past, and Ron Saunders said, oh, still telling him lies, are you, Ron? He said, you're right, I was just saying what a good manager you are. <laughs> Funny man. Ladies and gentlemen, Pat Murphy. Thank you very much indeed. <laughs>